Fourth Division, Concerning the Soul of Artists and Authors, Part 2 of Human All Too Human, A Book for Free Spirits, by Friedrich Nietzsche, translated by Helen Zimmern. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. 194. The Fools of Modern Culture The fools of medieval courts correspond to our Phaeton writers. They are the same kind of men, semi-rational, witty, extravagant, foolish, sometimes there only for the purpose of lessening the pathos of the outlook with fancies and chatter, and of drowning with their clamor the far too deep and solemn chimes of great events. They were formerly in the service of princes and nobles, now they are in the service of parties, since a large portion of the old obsequiousness in the intercourse of the people with their prince still survives in party feeling and party discipline. Modern literary men, however, are generally very similar to the Phaeton writers. They are the fools of modern culture, whom one judges more leniently when one does not regard them as fully responsible beings. To look upon writing as a regular profession should justly be regarded as a form of madness. 195. After the example of the Greeks. It is a great hindrance to knowledge at present that, owing to centuries of exaggeration of feeling, all words have become vague and inflated. The higher stage of culture, which is under the sway, though not under the tyranny, of knowledge, requires great sobriety of feeling and thorough concentration of words, on which points the Greeks in the time of Demosthenes set an example to us. Exaggeration is a distinguished mark of all modern writings, and even when they are simply written the expressions therein are still felt as too eccentric. Careful reflection, conciseness, coldness, plainness, even carried intentionally to the farthest limits, in a word, suppression of feeling and taciturnity, these are the only remedies. For the rest, this cold manner of writing and feeling is now very attractive, as a contrast, and to be sure there is a new danger therein, for intense cold is as good as stimulus as a high degree of warmth. 196. Good narrators, bad explainers. In good narrators there is often found an admirable psychological sureness and logicalness, as far as these qualities can be observed in the actions of their personages in positively ludicrous contrast to their inexperienced psychological reasoning, so that their culture appears to be as extraordinarily high one moment as it seems regrettably defective in the next. It happens far too frequently that they give an evidently false explanation of their own heroes and their actions. Of this, there is no doubt, however improbable the thing may appear. It is quite likely that the greatest pianoforte player has thought but little about the technical conditions and the special virtues, drawbacks, usefulness, and tractability of each finger, dactylic ethics, and makes big mistakes whenever he speaks of such things. 197. The Writings of Acquaintances and Their Readers We read the writings of our acquaintances, friends and enemies, in a double sense, inasmuch as our perception constantly whispers, this is something of himself, a remembrance of his inward being, his experiences, his talents. And at the same time, another kind of perception endeavors to estimate the profit of the work in itself, what valuation it merits apart from its author, how far it will enrich knowledge. These two manners of reading and estimating interfere with each other, as may naturally be supposed. And a conversation with a friend will only bear good fruit of knowledge when both think only of the matter under consideration and forget they are friends. 198. Rhythmical Sacrifice 
Good writers alter the rhythm of many a period merely because they do not credit the general reader with the ability to comprehend the measure, followed by the period in its first version. Thus, they make it easier for the reader by giving the preference to the better-known rhythms. This regard for the rhythmical incapacity of the modern reader has already called forth many a sigh, for much has been sacrificed to it. Does not the same thing happen to good musicians? 199. The incomplete as an artistic stimulus. The incomplete is often more effective than perfection, and this is the case with eulogies. To effect their purpose, a stimulating incompleteness is necessary, as an irrational element, which calls up a sea before the hearer's imagination and, like a mist, conceals the opposite coast, i.e. the limits of the object of praise. If the well-known merits of a person are referred to and described at length and in detail, it always gives rise to the suspicion that these are his only merits. The perfect eulogist takes his stand above the person praised. He appears to overlook him. Therefore, complete praise has a weakening effect. 200. Precautions in Writing and Teaching Whoever has once written and has been seized with the passion for writing learns from almost all that he does and experiences that which is literally communicable. He thinks no longer of himself, but of the author and his public. He desires insight into things, but not for his own use. He who teaches is mostly incapable of doing anything for his own good. He's always thinking of the good of his scholars, and all knowledge delights him only insofar as he is able to teach it. He comes at last to regard himself as a medium of knowledge, and above all, as a means thereto, so that he has lost all serious consideration for himself. 201. The Necessity for Bad Authors There will always be a need of bad authors, for they meet the taste of readers of an undeveloped, immature age. These have their requirements as well as mature readers. If human life were a greater length, the number of mature individuals would be greater than that of the immature, or at least equally great. But, as it is, by far the greater number die too young, i.e., there are always many more undeveloped intellects with bad taste. These demand, with the greater impetuosity of youth, the satisfaction of their needs, and they insist on having bad authors. 202. Too near and too far. The reader and the author very often do not understand each other, because the author knows his theme too well and finds it almost slow, so that he omits the examples, of which he knows hundreds. The reader, however, is interested in the subject and is liable to consider it as badly proved if examples are lacking. 203. A Vanished Preparation for Art Of everything that was practiced in public schools, the thing of greatest value was the exercise in Latin style. This was an exercise in art, whilst all other occupations aimed only at the acquirement of knowledge. It is a barbarism to put German composition before it, for there is no typical German style developed by public oratory. But if there is a desire to advance practice and thoughts by means of German composition, then it is certainly better for the time being to pay no attention to style, to separate the practice and thought, therefore, from the practice in reproduction. The latter should confine itself to the various modes of presenting a given subject, and should not concern itself with the independent finding of a subject. The mere presentment of given subject was the task of the Latin style, for which the old teachers possessed a long-vanished delicacy of ear. Formerly, whoever learned to write well in a modern language had to thank this practice for the acquirement. Now we are 
obliged to go to school to the older French writers. But yet more, he obtained an idea of the loftiness and difficulty of form, and was prepared for art in the only right way, by practice. 204. Darkness and Overbrightness Side by Side Authors who, in general, do not understand how to express their thoughts clearly are fond of choosing, in detail, the strongest, most exaggerated distinctions and superlatives. Thereby is produced an effect of light, which is like torchlight in intricate forest paths. 205. Literary Painting An important object will be best described if the colors for the painting are taken out of the object itself, as a chemist does and then employed like an artist, so that the drawing develops from the outlines and transitions of the colors. Thus the painting acquires something of the enticing natural element which gives such importance to the object itself. 206. Books which teach how to dance. There are authors who, by representing the impossible as possible, and by talking of morality and cleverness, as if both were merely moods and humors assumed at will, produce a feeling of exuberant freedom, as if man stood on tiptoe and were compelled to dance from sheer inward delight. 207. Unfinished Thoughts Just as not only manhood but also youth and childhood have a value per se, and are not to be looked upon merely as passages and bridges, so also unfinished thoughts have their value. For this reason we must not torment a poet with subtle explanations, but must take pleasure in the uncertainty of his horizon, as if the way to further thoughts were still open. We stand on the threshold. We wait as for the digging up of a treasure. It is as if a well of profundity were about to be discovered. The poet anticipates something of the thinker's pleasure in the discovery of a leading thought, and makes us covetous, so that we give chase to it. But it flutters past our head and exhibits the loveliest butterfly wings, and yet it escapes us. 208. The book grown almost into a human being. Every author is surprised anew at the way in which his book, as soon as he has sent it out, continues to live a life of its own. It seems to him as if one part of an insect had been cut off and now went on its own way. Perhaps he forgets it almost entirely. Perhaps he rises above the view expressed therein. Perhaps even he understands it no longer, and has lost that impulse upon which he soared at the time he conceived the book. Meanwhile, it seeks its readers, inflames life, pleases, horrifies, inspires new works, becomes the soul of design and actions. In short, it lives like a creature endowed with a mind and soul, and yet is no human being. The happiest fate is that of the author who, as an old man, is able to say that all there was in him of life-inspiring, strengthening, exalting, enlightening thoughts and feelings still lives on in his writings, and that he himself now only represents the gray ashes whilst the fire has been kept alive and spread out. And if we consider that every human action, not only a book, is in some way or other the cause of other actions, decisions, and thoughts, that everything that happens is inseparably connected with everything that is going to happen, we recognize the real immorality, that of movement, that which has once moved is enclosed and immortalized in the general union of all existence, like an insect within a piece of amber. 209. Joy in Old Age. The thinker, as likewise the artist, who has put his best self into his works, 
feels an almost malicious joy when he sees how mind and body are being slowly damaged and destroyed by time, as if from a dark corner he were spying a thief in his money chest, knowing all the time that it was empty and his treasures in safety. 210. Quiet Fruitfulness The born aristocrats of the mind are not in too much of a hurry. Their creations appear and fall from the tree on some quiet autumn evening, without being rashly desired, instigated, or pushed aside by the new matter. The unceasing desire to create is vulgar, and betrays envy, jealousy, and ambition. If a man is something, it is not really necessary for him to do anything, and yet he does a great deal. There is a human species higher even than we, productive man. 2.11. Achilles and Homer It is always like the case of Achilles and Homer, that one has the experiences and sensations, and the other describes them. A genuine author only puts into words the feelings and adventures of others. He is an artist, and divines much from the little he has experienced. Artists are by no means creatures of great passion but they frequently represent themselves as such with the unconscious feeling that their depicted passion will be better believed in if their own life gives credence to their experience in these affairs. They need only let themselves go, not control themselves, and give free play to their anger and their desires, and everyone will immediately cry out, How passionate he is! But the deeply stirring passion that consumes and often destroys the individual is another matter. Those who have already experienced it do not describe it in dramas, harmonies, or romances. Artists are frequently unbridled individuals, insofar as they are not artists, but that is a different thing. 2.12. Old Doubts About the Effect of Art Should pity and fear really be unburdened through tragedy, as Aristotle would have it, so that the hearers return home colder and quieter? Should ghost stories really make us less fearful and superstitious? In the case of certain physical processes, in the satisfaction of love, for instance, it is true that with the fulfillment of a need there follows an alleviation and temporary decrease in the impulse. But fear and pity are not in this sense the needs of particular organs, which require to be relieved. And in time every instinct is even strengthened by practice in its satisfaction, in spite of that periodical mitigation. It might be possible that in each single case pity and fear would be soothed and relieved by tragedy. Nonetheless, they might, on the whole, be increased by traffic influences, and Plato would be right in saying that tragedy makes us altogether more timid and susceptible. This tragic poet himself would then of necessity acquire a gloomy and fearful view of the world, and a yielding, irritable, tearful soul. It would also agree with Plato's view if the tragic poets, and likewise the entire part of the community that derived particular pleasure from them, degenerated into even greater licentiousness and intemperance. But what right, indeed, has our age to give an answer to that great question of Plato's as to the moral influence of art? If we even had art, where have we an influence, any kind of an art influence? 2.13. Pleasure in Nonsense How can we take pleasure in nonsense? But wherever there is laughter in the world, this is the case. It may even be said that almost everywhere where there is happiness, there is found pleasure in nonsense. The transformation of experience into its opposite, of the suitable into the unsuitable, the obligatory into the optional, but in such a manner that this process produces no injury and is only imagined in jest. It is a pleasure. 
for it temporarily liberates us from the yoke of the obligatory, suitable, and experienced in which we usually find our pitiless masters. We play and laugh when the expected, which generally causes fear and expectancy, happens without bringing any injury. It is the pleasure felt by slaves in the Saturnalian feasts. 214. The Ennobling of Reality Through the fact that in the aphrodisiac impulse men discerned a godhead and with adoring gratitude felt it working within themselves, this emotion has in the course of time become imbued with higher conceptions and has thereby been materially ennobled. Thus certain nations, by virtue of this art of idealization, have created great aids to culture out of diseases. The Greeks, for instance, who in earlier centuries suffered from great nervous epidemics, like epilepsy and St. Vitus dance, and developed out of them the splendid type of the Bacchant. The Greeks, however, enjoyed an astonishingly high degree of health. Their secret was to revere even disease as a god, if it only possessed power. 215. Music. Music by and for itself is not so portentous for our inward nature, so deeply moving, that it ought to be looked upon as the direct language of the feelings, but its ancient union with poetry has infused so much symbolism into rhythmical movement, into loudness and softness of tone, that we now imagine it speaks directly to and comes from the inward nature. Dramatic music is only possible when the art of harmony has acquired an immense range of symbolical means, through song, opera, and a hundred attempts at description by sound. Absolute magic is either form per se in the rude condition of music when playing in time and with various degrees of strength gives pleasure, or the symbolism of form which speaks to the understanding even without poetry. After the two arts were joined finally together after long development and the musical form had been woven about with threads of meaning and feeling. People who are backward in musical development can appreciate a piece of harmony merely as execution, whilst those who are advanced will comprehend it symbolically. No music is deep and full of meaning in itself. It does not speak of will, of the thing in itself, that could be imagined by the intellect only in an age which had conquered for musical symbolism the entire range of inner life. It was the intellect itself that first gave this meaning to sound, just as it also gave meaning to the relation between lines and masses in architecture, but which in itself is quite foreign to mechanical laws. 2.16. Gesture and Speech Older than speech is the imitation of gestures, which is carried on unconsciously and which, in the general repression of the language of gesture and train control of the muscles, is still so great that we cannot look at a face moved by emotion without feeling an agitation of our own face. It may be remarked that feigned yawnings excites real yawning in anyone who sees it. The imitated gesture leads the one who imitates back to the sensation it expressed in the face or body of the one imitated. Thus, men learn to understand one another. Thus, the child still learns to understand the mother. Generally speaking, painful sensations may also have been expressed by gestures, and the pain which caused them, for instance, tearing the hair, beating the breast, forcible distortion and straining of the muscles of the face. On the other hand, Gestures of joy were themselves joyful and lent themselves easily to the communication of the understanding. Laughter, as the expression of the feeling when being tickled, serves also for the expression of the other pleasurable sensations. As soon as men understand each other by gestures, there could be established a symbolism of gesture. I mean, an understanding could be arrived at respecting the language of accents, so that first accent and gesture 
to which it was symbolically added, were produced, and later on the accent alone. In former times there happened very frequently that which now happens in the development of music, especially of dramatic musics. While music, without explanatory dance and pantomime, language of gesture, is at first only empty sound, but by long familiarity with that combination of music and movement, the ear becomes schooled into instant interpretation of the figures of sound, and finally attains a height of quick understanding, where it has no longer any need of visible movement, and understands the sound poet without it. It is then called absolute music, that is music in which, without further help, everything is symbolically understood. 217. The Spiritualizing of Higher Art By virtue of extraordinary intellectual exercise through the art development of the new music, our ears have been growing more intellectual. For this reason we can now endure a much greater volume of sound, much more noise, because we are far better practiced in listening for the sense in it than were our ancestors. As a matter of fact, all our senses have been somewhat blunted because they immediately look for the sense, that is, they ask what it means and not what it is. Such a blunting betrays itself, for instance, in the absolute dominion of the temperature of sounds. For ears, which still make their finer distinctions between eyes and des, for instance, are now amongst the exceptions. In this respect, our ear has grown coarser, and then the ugly side of the world, the one originally hostile to the senses, has been conquered for music. Its power has been immensely widened, especially in the expression of the noble, the terrible, and the mysterious. Our music now gives utterance to things which had formerly no tongue. In the same way, certain painters have rendered the eye more intellectual, and have gone far beyond that which was formerly called pleasure in color and form. Here, too, that side of the world originally considered as ugly has been conquered by the artistic intellect. What results from all this? The more capable of thought that eye and ear become, the more they approach the limit where they become senseless. The seat of pleasure is moved into the brain. The organ of the senses themselves become dulled and weak. The symbolical takes more and more place of the actual, and thus we arrive at barbarism in this way as surely as in any other. In the meantime, we may say, the world is uglier than ever, but it represents a more beautiful world than has ever existed. But the more the amber scent of meaning is dispersed and evaporated, the rarer becomes those who perceive it, and the remainder halt at what is ugly and endeavor to enjoy it direct, an aim, however, which they never succeed in attaining. Thus, in Germany there is a twofold direction of musical development. Here a throng of 10,000 with even higher, finer demands, ever listening more and more for the it means, and there the immense countless mass which yearly grows more incapable of understanding what is important even in the form of sensual ugliness, and which therefore turns ever more willingly to what in music is ugly and foul in itself, that is, to the basely sensual. 218. A stone is more of a stone than formerly. As a general rule, we no longer understand architecture, at least by no means in the same way as we understand music. We have outgrown the symbolism of lines and figures, just as we are no longer accustomed to the sound effects of rhetoric, and have not absorbed this kind of mother's milk of culture since our first moment of life. Everything in a Greek or Christian building originally had a meaning, and referred to a higher order of things. This feeling of inexhaustible meaning enveloped the edifice like a mystic veil. Beauty was only a secondary consideration in the system, without in any way materially injuring the fundamental sentiment of the mysteriously exalted. 
the divinely and magically consecrated. At the most, beauty tempered horror, but this horror was everywhere presupposed. What is the beauty of a building now? The same thing as the beautiful face of a stupid woman, a kind of mask. 219. The Religious Source of the Newer Music Soulful music arose out of the Catholicism re-established after the Council of Trent, through Palestrina, who endowed the newly awakened, earnest, and deeply moved spirit with sound. Later on, in Bach, it appeared also in Protestantism. As far as this had been deepened by the Pietist and released from its originally dogmatic character, the supposition and necessary preparation for both origins is the familiarity with music, which existed during and before the Renaissance, namely, that learned occupation with music, which was really scientific pleasure in the masterpieces of harmony and voice training. On the other hand, the opera must have preceded it, wherein the layman made his protest against a music that had grown too learned and cold, and endeavored to re-endow polyhymnia with a soul. Without the change to that deeply religious sentiment, without the dying away of the inwardly moved temperament, music would have remained learned or operatic. The spirit of the Counter-Reformation is the spirit of modern music, for that pietism in box music is also a kind of Counter-Reformation. So deeply are we indebted to this religious life. Music was the Counter-Reformation in the field of art. To this belongs also the later painting of the Carsi and Caravaggi, perhaps also the Baroque style in any case more than the architecture of the Renaissance or of antiquity. And we might still ask, if our newer music could move stones, would it build them up into antique architecture? I very much doubt it. For that which predominates in this music, affections, pleasure and exalted, highly strained sentiments, the desire to be alive at any cost, the quick change of feeling, the strong relief effects of light and shade, the combination in the ecstatic and naive, all this has already reigned in the plastic arts and created new laws of style, but it was neither in the time of antiquity nor of the Renaissance. 220. The Beyond in Art It is not without deep pain that we acknowledge the fact that in their loftiest soarings, artists of all ages have exalted and divinely transfigured precisely those ideas which we now recognize as false. They are the glorifiers of humanity's religious and philosophical errors, and they could not have been this without belief in the absolute truth of these errors. But if the belief in such truth diminishes at all, if the rainbow colors at the furthest end of human knowledge and imagination fade, then this kind of art can never reflourish, for, like the Divina Commedia, Raphael's paintings, Michelangelo's frescoes, and Gothic cathedrals, they indicate not only a cosmic, but also metaphysical meaning in the work of art. Out of all this will grow a touching legend that such an art, and such an artistic faith, once existed. 221. Revolution in Poetry The strict limit which the French dramatists marked out with regard to unity of action, time and place, construction of style, verse and sentence, selection of words and ideas, was a school as important as that of counterpoint and fugue in the development of modern music or that of the Gorgiatic figures in Greek oratory. Such a restriction may appear absurd. Nevertheless, there is no means of getting out of naturalism except by confining ourselves at first to the strongest, perhaps most arbitrary, means. Thus we gradually learn to walk gracefully on the narrow paths that bridge giddy abysses and acquire great suppleness of movement as a result, as the history of music proves to our living eyes. Here we see how, step by step, 
the fetters get looser until at last they may appear to be altogether thrown off. This appearance is the highest achievement of a necessary development in art. In the art of modern poetry, there existed no such fortunate, gradual emerging from self-imposed fetters. Lessing held up to scorn in Germany the French form, the only modern form of art, and pointed to Shakespeare. And thus the steadiness of that unfettering was lost, and a spring was made into naturalism, that is, back into the beginnings of art. From this Goethe endeavored to save himself, by always trying to limit himself anew in different ways. But even the most gifted only succeeds by continuously experimenting. If the thread of development has once been broken, it is to the unconsciously revered, if also repudiated, model of French tragedy that Schiller owes his comparative sureness of form, and he remained fairly independent of Lessing, whose dramatic attempts he is well known to have rejected. But after Voltaire, the French themselves suddenly lacked the great talents which would have led the development of tragedy out of constraint to that apparent freedom. Later on, they followed the German example and made a spring into a sort of Rousseau-like state of nature and experiments. It is only necessary to read Voltaire's Mahomet from time to time in order to perceive clearly what European culture has lost through that breaking down of tradition. Once for all, Voltaire was the last of the great dramatists who with Greek proportion controlled his manifold soul equal even to the greatest storms of tragedy. He was able to do what no German could, because the French nature is much nearer akin to the Greek than is the German. He was also the last great writer who in the wielding of prose possessed the Greek ear, Greek artistic conscientiousness, and Greek simplicity and grace. He was, also, one of the last men able to combine in himself the greatest freedom of mind and an absolutely unrevolutionary way of thinking without being inconsistent and cowardly. Since that time, the modern spirit, with its restlessness and its hatred of moderation and restrictions, has obtained the mastery on all sides, let loose at first by the fever of revolution, and then once more putting a bridle on itself when it became filled with fear and horror at itself. But it was the bridle of rigid logic, no longer that of artistic moderation. It is true that through that unfettering for a time we are able to enjoy the poetry of all nations. Everything that has sprung up in hidden places, original, wild, wonderfully beautiful, and gigantically irregular, from folk songs up to the great barbarian, Shakespeare. We taste the joys of local color and costume, hitherto unknown to all artistic nations. We make liberal use of the barbaric advantages of our time, which Goethe accentuated against Schiller in order to place the formulousness of his Faust in the most favorable light. But for how much longer? The encroaching flood of poetry of all styles and all nations must gradually sweep away that magic garden upon which a quiet and hidden growth would still have been possible. All poets must become experimenting imitators, daring copyists, however great their primary strength may be. Eventually, the public, which has lost the habit of seeing the actual artistic fact in the controlling of depicting power, in the organizing mastery over all art means, must come ever more and more to value power for power's sake, color for color's sake, idea for idea's sake, inspiration for inspiration's sake. Accordingly, it will not enjoy the elements and conditions of the work of art unless isolated, and finally will make the very natural demand that the artist must deliver it to them isolated. True, the senseless fetters of Franco-Greek art have been thrown off, but unconsciously we have grown accustomed to consider all fetters, all restrictions is senseless. And so art moves towards its liberation, but, in doing so, it touches, which is certainly highly edifying, 
upon all the phases of its beginning, its childhood, its incompleteness, its sometime boldness and excesses. In perishing, it interprets its origin and growth. One of the great ones, whose instinct may be relied on and whose theory lacked nothing but thirty years more of practice, Lord Byron once said, that with regard to poetry in general, the more he thought about it, the more convinced he was that one and all we are entirely on a wrong track, that we are following an inwardly false revolutionary system, and that either our own generation or the next will yet arrive at the same conviction. It is the same Lord Byron who said that he looked upon Shakespeare as the very worst model, although the most extraordinary poet. And does not Goethe's mature artistic insight in the second half of his life say practically the same thing? That insight by means of which he made such a bound in advance of whole generations that, generally speaking, it may be said that Goethe's influence has not yet begun, that his time has still to come. Just because his nature held him fast for a long time in the path of the poetical revolution, just because he drank to the dregs of whatsoever new sources, views, and expedients had been indirectly discovered through that breaking down of tradition, of all that had been unearthed from under the ruins of art, his later transformation and conversion carries so much weight. It shows that he felt the deepest longing to win back the traditions of art, and to give in fancy the ancient perfection and completeness to the abandoned ruins and colonnades of the temple, with the imagination of the eye at least, should the strength of the arm be found too weak to build where such tremendous powers were needed even to destroy. Thus he lived in art as the remembrance of the true art, his poetry had become an aid to remembrance, to the understanding of old and long-departed ages of art. With respect to the strength of the new age, his demand could not be satisfied, but the pain this occasioned was amply balanced by the joy that they have been satisfied once, and that we ourselves can still participate in this satisfaction. Not individuals, but more or less ideal masks. No reality, but an allegorical generality. Topical characters, Local colors toned down and rendered mythical almost to the point of invisibility. Contemporary feeling and the problems of contemporary society reduced to the simplest forms, stripped of their attractive, interesting pathological qualities, made ineffective in every other but the artistic sense. No new materials and characters, but the old, long-accustomed ones in constant new animation and transformation. That is art, as Goethe understood it later as the Greeks and even the French practiced it. 2.22. What Remains of Art It is true that art has a much greater value in the case of certain metaphysical hypotheses. For instance, when the belief obtains that the character is unchangeable and that the essence of the world manifests itself continually in all character and action. Thus the artist's work becomes the symbol of the eternally constant, while according to our views, the artist can only endow his picture with temporary value, because man on the whole has developed and is mutable, and even the individual man has nothing fixed and constant. The same thing holds good with another metaphysical hypothesis. Assuming that our visible world were only a delusion, as metaphysicians declare, then art would come very near to the real world, for there would then be far too much similarity between the world of appearance and the dream world of the artist and the remaining difference would place the meaning of art higher even than the meaning of nature, because art would represent the same forms, the types and models of nature. But these suppositions are false, and what position does art retain after this acknowledgement? Above all, for centuries it has taught us to look upon life in every shape with interest and pleasure, and to carry our feelings so far that at last we exclaim, 
Whatever it may be, life is good. This teaching of art, to take pleasure in existence and to regard human life as a piece of nature, without too vigorous movement, as an object of regular development, this teaching has grown into us. It reappears as an all-powerful need of knowledge. We could renounce art, but we should not therewith forfeit the ability it has taught us. Just as we have given up religion, but not the exalting and intensifying of temperament acquired through religion. As the plastic arts and music are the standards of that wealth of feeling really acquired and obtained through religion, so also, after a disappearance of art, the intensity and multiplicity of the joys of life which it had implanted in us would still demand satisfaction. The scientific man is the further development of the artistic man. 23. The Afterglow of Art Just as in old age we remember our youth and celebrate festivals of memory, so in a short time mankind will stand towards art. Its relation will be that of a touching memory of the joys of youth. Never, perhaps, in former ages was art dealt with so seriously and thoughtfully as now when it appears to be surrounded by the magic influence of death. We call to mind that Greek city in southern Italy, which once a year still celebrates its Greek feasts, amidst tears and mourning, that foreign barbarism triumphs ever more and more over the customs its people brought with them into the land. And never has Hellenism been so much appreciated. Nowhere has this golden nectar been drunk with so great delight as amongst these fast-disappearing Hellenes. The artist will soon come to be regarded as a splendid relic, and to him, as to a wonderful stranger on whose power and beauty depended the happiness of former ages, there will be paid such honor as is not often enjoyed by one of our race. The best in us is perhaps inherited from the sentiments of former times, to which it is hardly possible for us now to return by direct ways. The sun has already disappeared, but the heavens of our life are still glowing and illumined by it, although we can behold it no longer. End of Fourth Division Concerning the Soul of Artists and Authors